Did you just say you started drinking rum already? Jesus. <laughs> okay. My turn. Oh. There you go. I hope you recorded uh, that. Hey, that probably came. That probably sounded pretty good. Yeah, that it was, did. That was it satisfying. Did, yeah. That was very satisfying. Well, cheers, gentlemen. It is Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, cheers to you. So tell us what delicious beverage is that that you're drinking? Um, well, I've been told recently that um, Coors only brought their banquet styled beer to Canada in the last few years. And so anyway, I've stumbled on this over the summer and can't get enough of it. Coors Banquet, it is phenomenal. Nice. Candid, brought to you by beer. Yeah, this is going, <laughs> this is quite possibly going to be an R-rated episode. So if you're sensitive <laughs> about this stuff, you have been warned. And if you have some... An R-rated photography podcast. Yeah, and if you have some alcoholic beverage uh, at hand, please feel free to indulge. We're doing it, so you can do it too. It's okay. Yeah, hey. We'll do our best. Uh, we'll, we'll do our best to behave. Tell your boss we said so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is the first time we've got the the uh, whole gang back together since uh, the Photokina rush of episodes. Yeah, which it's been a little while. Which, by the way, thank you guys very much for your support for that entire week. Uh, we had a lot of new listeners, I think, and uh, we took a bit of a break, so forgive the pause, but that was a very intense uh, like recording and editing schedule for us. And of course, Alvaro, oh, yeah, gave, so up, hard. Alvaro gave up sleep for a week um, <laughs> to bring us all the news. So um, yeah, yeah, but now we're back. Sleep is overrated anyway. It is a little overrated. <laughs> you did a great job, man, by the way. I got to just say, you did a great Thanks. job. Oh, yeah. On all of the writing in your own site, Tools and Toys, here. I was flat out impressed. It was tons of fun to do. So, yay. I'm happy. I believe you. Yeah. Um, but we should uh, we should catch up with Josh here because he did not join us for a lot of the Photokina stuff. And now that it's had a little... Uh, you know, there's been a little time for the dust to settle and we've begun to digest the uh, full scope of the news. Um, maybe we should just circle around and see what what people's reactions are kind of after the fact, now that we know what everyone's hmm. announced and we've seen the initial reactions. Like, how are we feeling about this year's photo keynote? The dust has settled. Yeah. So, okay, I'm just going to, I got to throw this out there straight up off the top. Long story short, what photo Kina has taught me this year, specifically this year, is like, Right alongside the launch of the iPhone 7 and now like the Google Pixel that just got announced this week that says that they've got the best mobile camera on a smartphone, which somehow like I guess it like like you said, Marius, it's an aggregate score, but that just seems like anyway. <laughs> so like with how good these cameras are getting and then the software stuff that they're adding in, like this portrait mode on the iPhone 7 Plus, which I, again, will stress, I love how much, I just love it. Anyway, there's a lot of pressure like from the bottom side of this whole spectrum, tons and tons and tons. And I'm just, I was really pumped with the EM1 Mark II. It has everything, right now at least, it has everything that I could possibly have wanted in that EM1 Mark II. And if it had been around in January of this past year, I would have bought it in a second. But like, I'm just afraid that the iPhone is going to slowly, continuously take over more and more of that small sensor market. And I can make a portrait photo look as almost as good right now on an iPhone as I can with my Olympus cameras because of this depth effect. So I'm just, I'm left thinking like, you know, is the ultimate kit that someone could have like an iPhone and then like a really high end 
medium format full frame camera or you know one or the other anyway those are that's my impressions again it's really broad and i i just wonder if if the there's going to be a huge push to make the sensors bigger and the body smaller well the pressure the pressure's there but it's funny that that you're saying this because you were the one who was telling me that oh no it's going to be years mm-hmm. and a decade until the iPhone is threatening you know What do they say about like the smartest the smartest people they always change their minds yeah i suppose so <laughs> but i i do I think you're right, though. I mean, it is it is certainly getting harder for smaller sensor camera manufacturers now to justify their systems um, when when you look at the convenience factor of an iPhone, because there is you know there's there's a an image quality uh, discrepancy that we're not really close to overcoming yet, especially in terms of uh, dynamic range and things like that. But uh, yeah, that's fair. Especially that's fair. with a technology like uh, this depth mapping on the iPhone Seven and, and stuff like that, it's uh, it's getting to the point where you can get good enough results with the phone, and that's very dangerous. But I think that especially for someone like us, uh, you know, you Josh, in the case of the EM One Mark II, mm-hmm. I guarantee that no matter how close, like even if the iPhone was one hundred percent capable of getting you the same kind of images as the EM One you would prefer to shoot on the EM1 because the ergonomics of shooting, you know, yeah. all of your photos yep. on an iPhone is pretty crap. Like it it does great for what it is, but 100%. it's not it's not a comfortable photographic tool. Right. right. So so Photokina I think like the the over I I guess this is yeah, all I can say is that I would I'm super impressed with the M1 Mark II comes out. It's got a small sensor blah 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 blah. What I was really impressed with Olympus specifically was that they've really like like their competitive advantage in the whole camera thing is like ergonomics and speed done. And like they improved those dramatically. They know what they're good at and they're doing it better. Yep. And that that's exciting. No matter what, no matter how big the sensor is, blah, blah, blah. They know what they're good at and they're doubling down on it. And, you know, it's fun to see what Fuji is doing here with this GFX camera uh, and the system as a, as a whole. I'm excited to see where it goes because like they're putting their foot into a huge, huge lake right. that they've never done before, or at least not recently. That nobody has ever done before, actually. Right. And so like for them, they're, they took a huge risk, whereas Olympus, um, you know, they're, they're doubling down on what they do great. So right. I, I, I think it's kind of cool to see the dynamic in between all the different companies, but I, I also think the dynamic of how good the iPhone is becoming is equally fun to watch. Yeah, I, I, I get all that, but I, I don't know that that's fair necessarily because Fuji, yeah, they've released a whole new sensor, a uh, whole new system uh, that is taking things further uh, in, a, in a very big way. But they're, at the same time, they're also doubling down, doubling down on what they do best, which is taking the X-T1, which is their most popular camera, and making it even better in many ways that count for many people. So I think they're doing both things. I think it's incredible how busy they've been over the past uh, few years. And now they're kind of reaping up those benefits. Yeah. Uh, but I, I can tell you the Fuji stand was probably the biggest out of all of the main company uh, camera companies at Photokina, and they just brought everyone there. It, they really did take the event seriously. Which is good, yeah. And you could tell. You could tell that people were very excited about what Fuji was doing. And I think that opinion is going to last for quite a few quite a few months at least. Well, it's difficult It's difficult not to be excited about it because they seem to be ticking all of these boxes that photographers have. And yeah. 
they're doing it very well. I mean, people who pick up the cameras are generally, I mean, the, the overwhelming majority of, of people who I have spoken to that that have encountered the Fuji cameras in person have fallen in love with them, um, which is positive, right? I mean, that, that's yeah. what you get when you spend a lot of time developing the cameras and you, you spend that time uh, not just internally, but also with a trusted group of active professional photographers, right? Because they're giving you, right. you know, battlefield tested <laughs> um, advice on, on what to change and how to make it better for real use. And the thing is, they're showing the confidence. I mean, that that's what that what got to me at Photokina is that they know they're at a high point in their in their trajectory and they want to get the most out of it. Like they they're 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 not thumping their chest or anything, but they're saying we know what we have now is good, probably better than what everybody else is doing, and we're gonna be pretty loud about it. Like they're not they're not being modest. And I like that. Right. I like that. That confidence yeah, is is necessary in in an industry that is as as cutthroat as this one. And speaking yeah. of cutthroat uh, and smartphone photography, like Josh was saying, this is actually something that caught my attention because of what wasn't there. And smartphone camera photography was suspiciously absent from Photokina, you know, at the bigger stages. Hmm. Uh, I was expecting to see some company release a new smartphone at Photokina where the camera was the main feature. I, I, I mean, there are so many companies doing smartphones these days that... It was just something that made sense in, in my head, but I didn't see it. And I think it's because the industry as a whole kind of is targeting the smartphone as the enemy. And they pretty much ignored it throughout the entire week. It's like it didn't exist. In fact, yeah, they were making a point to show the weaknesses of their smartphone because you did see accessories to make smartphone photography better. Uh, like, you know, these lenses that you can screw on a case and sort of give you a different focal length uh, on, on, on your phone. You did see accessories like that, but I miss, I miss seeing a new phone or a company saying, this phone is awesome for photography and these are the reasons why, come check it out. There was nothing yeah. like that. And that was a pretty big thing to ignore, I think. Potentially. I mean, we did have that funny um, news leak, or I, I don't know if it was an official invite or whatever, suggesting that Kodak is releasing a, well, somebody is releasing a right. Kodak branded <laughs> smartphone. I think right. that's, a, that's a more accurate way to put it because the, the Kodak <laughs> brand now is being licensed out to all sorts of things. But uh, yeah, there, there seems to be an indication that, that we'll see a Kodak um, phone within the next month or so. And that presumably is going to be photography focused, although I, I can't imagine they're going to do a better job than uh, the iPhone or the, the new Google Pixel phones. But why not announce it at Photokina, though? Well, you see, that's what I was wondering. because Same reason Sony didn't. Well, it's either it's either not ready or it just doesn't seem like the right market. I mean, for Sony, it makes sense, right? Because they had new camera stuff going out and they, they wanted the attention to be on their actual camera equipment rather than splitting attention between that and their... Uh, Xperia phone, right. which, by the way, is um, not doing great in the market, and the, the reviews have been pretty terrible. So I think that that's not really uh, they, they didn't have the confidence to try and insert that there, which uh, is probably for the best. I also don't know if smartphone companies, just in general, are invited to Photokina. Like as as exhibitors, are they even allowed? Well, the, but at what point are you a smartphone company or are you a camera company? If like I said, if if you push the camera as the, one of the main features of your new phone, it is a camera. Why not? 
why shouldn't you be allowed to to show it there? Oh, it would be a cold day in hell before we'd see Apple announce the iPhone. At yeah, but Apple has a tradition yeah. of ignoring these events like CES and <laughs> and these sort of uh, trade events. Right. No, no. I, I just think it'd be funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it I would. Think it'd be it would be. Yeah, but I mean, I sort of get why Apple doesn't want to be there. But every other company, it it seems like a natural fit, especially for those companies that are saying our camera is the best ever in a smartphone. Yeah, I suppose it depends on the audience overlap as well, right? Because I think that um, Photokina wants, like just as an organization, probably wants to brand itself more as the convention for um, not necessarily just professional photographers, but but kind of uh, celebrating photography as the uh, the big philosophical concept and the the core thing, not the, you know, it, it doesn't want to celebrate devices where photography is a secondary aspect yeah, um, absolutely. to something else or is just like a feature of another absolutely. Uh, thing, right? Because even though the iPhone cameras are great and other smartphone cameras are great, it is still a feature on a general purpose computing device. So I, I can understand there being a bit of a divide there. I think it's it's much more likely that we would see things like the DxO1 and the um, the Olympus Air, uh, Air something, whatever they call it, the, the two little like iPhone companion camera attachment things. Oh, right, right, right. And Those actually were, seemed pretty cool. They, but, they yeah. are. And, and I would have, um, you know, I, I would have imagined we might see a new generation of those, but we we didn't. But in any event, that, I, I, say, I think there is a line drawn in the sand between something like that and a dedicated smartphone. So I'm not really surprised that no smartphone company um, exhibited anything at Photokina, but I, at the same time, it's only a matter of time. Yeah, but that that divide is there definitely. But I, what I am surprised about is that no company dared to break the divide. Like no company thought of this as an opportunity to say we're going to be the first one to show a smartphone off of, at Photokina. I mean, yeah, that opportunity was happen. there. It's inevitable. It's just a matter of time. You should start your own company. I definitely should right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> While there's still rum, I'm going to buy the Serrano one. <laughs> Done. <laughs> <laughs> so oddly we all kind of thought that you know uh, Alvaro kind of pointed out pretty quickly and very adeptly I might add that you know Sony was going to wait until after Photokina to announce whatever product they had because they wouldn't be sharing the spotlight with everybody yeah. else and lo and behold like uh less than a week later here we are <laughs> another a a60 something hundred like is this I'm trying to do the math as to when they released the A6300 because I, it felt like six weeks ago. Well, it's six months more than more more than six weeks, oh. but yeah. <laughs> Either way, yeah, I think it was announced in March or something like that. So it's it's seven <laughs> seven months. They at probably most. had the A6500 in works when they announced the A6300. Absolutely, Absolutely. I mean, they of course. <laughs> well, not not just in works, but like completed prototype. Yeah, everything. yeah, Done. definitely. And, but th the thing is, this is probably <laughs> the camera they should have released instead of the A6300. So, so why the A6300? Because uh, the A6300 was such a minor update over the A6000, and the A6000 was such a popular camera that really the only reason why I didn't buy it is because I didn't feel it was uh, worth it as an upgrade. Like it, it is just there was something missing and now this one comes along and everything makes sense. It's like they sort of took an extra step in, in the middle there that they really didn't need to take. And now I don't know the, their lineup is a bit of a mess because it's no doubt. It's kind of like Harry Potter seven, part one, Harry Potter seven, part two, right? Like let's dip or, you know, double dip. Yeah. Something like that. There just one movie too many. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I I absolutely consider this a misstep on their part because the A6000 is like 
a, a wildly successful camera. Like they sold so many of those, it's not even funny. And they really did not need to update it when they did. Like the A6300, like you said, it was a modest bump. But at the point when it came out, the A6000 really didn't have much in the way of, you know, threatening competition yeah. uh, in that space. Yeah. It was still at the pinnacle of technical uh, prowess and in many ways still is. So I think that for them, a much smarter business move would have been to skip the A6300, wait that year, you know, the full year. I know it's terrifying for Sony, but like just give it a little breathing <laughs> room. And then release the A6500 because suddenly it would have been a massive leap, right? Because unfortunately for the people who upgraded from the A6000 to the A65 or A6300, now they're stuck in a bit of an awkward place because they just did that, right? Like yeah. for most people, it'll be like within yeah. the past three months, within the past four months tops. And I just can't see, yeah, I can't see any A6300 owner who wouldn't want to uh, to upgrade to the A6500. That's just it, right? It's This is finally a compelling upgrade, even from the A6300, but just the realities of how you know camera financing works, and this is a more expensive camera now, it would have been much easier for them to justify that if they were leaping up from the A6000. And there would have been a ton of upgraders you know going I think, from the A6000. Yeah, you know what I think happened? Or, or forced their hand in a way? They did have this camera ready to go, but maybe for next generation, because uh, these prototypes are often done a year or more in advance. And the thing is, they probably didn't dare to go past the $1,000 mark, the $1,000 price point. They probably didn't feel like APS-C was strong enough as a system or as a sensor size to warrant that higher price. But then they noticed that Fuji started doing it with the X-Pro2, then with the X-T2, and they said, okay, if people are, are going for it, then we can do it too. So Right. Like if you guys jumped off a bridge, I would too. <laughs> like going where the market is going instead of what their more conservative estimate uh, dictated a year ago. Maybe that's what happened here. Maybe. I don't I don't find that especially convincing though, because I think that if anyone could have done something like this, it would have been Sony. I mean, they've not exactly been shy about putting large price tags on their products, and they've always been confident that the products are excellent enough to merit those costs. Yay. So, uh, yeah, but they're coming dangerously close to their full-frame cameras here, and they don't want to threaten those. Those are their bread and butter. Well, that's, yeah. You know, they should release a new one of those. That's what they should do. Like, what are they waiting <laughs> well, for? Well, just give it a week. <laughs> yeah, seriously, at this point. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm waiting. I mean, before I finish my drink here, we're going to have tweets all over the place saying... <laughs> Hey, new camera from Sony. But you know what I'm really yeah. pissed about? 50 millimeter lens. What? 50 mil, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. No new 50 mil lens. Oh, come on. They're losing it. They're like, doomed. They're losing it. They're doomed. Absolutely. Uh, I feel like I should scratch a little marking into my wall each time Sony has a new E-mount 50 mil lens and I'll end up looking like a little prison cell in here before long. Uh, don't, don't talk too soon because they did say they wouldn't release a camera without a lens and so far the day's still young. <laughs> yeah, so much for that. Oh, uh, that's funny. We There's still room for a 50 millimeter baddest. Yeah. You know, that's that's just around the corner. It's got to be. But that size, that doesn't count. That, that's I don't size. know. I'd count oh. it. I'd count it. It's I think it counts. Size, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. fair enough. So can you guys run through the specs of this A6500? Because I kid you not, with the A6300 being announced just so like recently, I, I literally thought, I rolled my eyes when I saw the announcement and thought, this has got to be a joke. And I didn't even read a single announcement. I'll take this one. Uh, so basically, this is the camera that fixes every shortcoming that the 
that people complained about the A6300. You know, that when the A6300 was announced, everybody expected it to be a bigger update. And I, for one, expected it to have uh, in-body image stabilization, which it didn't have. I expected it to have a touchscreen, which it didn't have. And I expected it to have, I don't know, bells and whistles in, in every other way. But these two main main upgrades are now included in the A6500, the touchscreen and the, uh, the image stabilization. And it's just mind-boggling that they didn't do it six months ago because all of their new generation full-frame cameras had it by then. And it, it just it didn't make any sense to see a new camera without image stabilization at that point. And now they're finally adding it. Uh, so, well, I'm happy there. Another new okay. feature was the improved grip because it's now deeper. It's almost exactly like the one in the A7 II series uh, cameras, the, the the second generation bodies. Which I'm happy about. The only difference there is that it doesn't have the front dial, which is a stupid omission, if I may say so, because it didn't. It it wouldn't have cost them anything to put it there, and it would have solved the main problem with the A6000 series ergonomics, which is that they only have one main control dial. The second dial is the menu dial, which is in the back plate of the camera. But that one is in a very oh, awkward position dumb. and it's not really a good place for that sort of thing. So the new bigger grip gave them the chance to add a second control dial and they didn't do it. And that's unfortunate, but what can you do? Uh, what else is there? They are, they are, well, they are of course, including everything that was great about the A6300, like the sensor, the, all the focus points, but they're improving the autofocus even more. They are adding eye autofocus in continuous mode, which is not available on any other Sony camera. Ooh, and that nice. always pissed me off to no end because when you're going to take a portrait and the person is moving, the autofocus locks to one eye, but if you're using a fast lens and the person moves even very slightly between when the camera locks focus and when you press the shutter, Sometimes you get it out of focus, and that's uh, it. Re it's really annoying. So now right. to have that in continuous autofocus, where the camera is going to keep tracking the eye at all times, that should improve the rate of keepers that you get when you're using the feature for portraits, which is awesome. And there's a very deep buffer as well, so you that's can actually be awesome. using that burst. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's not just that the buffer takes longer to fill, but that you can get instant previews of the pictures you just shot. You don't have to wait yeah. for the camera to write all of the pictures to, to the car to be able to preview them. You can just hit the play button just after you push the shutter and, and it'll show the pictures right up. So that's great. Uh, what else is there? There's also the LSI technology that they brought over into the sensor. Yeah. Yeah, so basically that's inherited from the new A99 Mark II. They added a second processor, image processor, to the chip. And they are saying that that improves about a stop of extra performance in low-light situations. So you should expect to get cleaner images at higher ISOs. Uh, it remains to be seen how good that is because I've... Uh, I mean... All I have is their word for it. I haven't been able to really evaluate the results myself because when I shot with the A99 Mark II, uh, we couldn't. We were not allowed to take the pictures home with us. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm taking their word for it. That's easily verifiable, anyway. So, so okay. A quick question: You've got these APS-C sensors, and they're smaller. 
And it's still the E mount. So that means that all of the FE lenses that are kicking around out there, which there's a ton of 50 millimeter lenses. Uh, does that, like if I put a full frame lens onto the any of these A6500s or A6300s, like what, where does that leave me? Like, does the lens... Like, obviously there's a focal length or change yeah. or like a, a factor yeah. involved, but regardless of that, like does a lens, like I've got this 25 millimeter baddest, that would be something like 35 millimeters if I shot with an A6500. Yeah. Would I get like sharp edged? Like I'm not getting the full performance of my 25 millimeter no, baddest, am I? No, you're not. Because no. I mean, and we should probably link and we'll, we'll put this in the show notes, but Tony Northrup had a great video about this uh, a few months ago. When you use a full frame lens on an APS-C camera, you're magnifying the flaws of the lens, so to speak. So you're getting lower uh, lower megapixels in practice. You're you're getting uh, a worse sharpness than you would get with the same lens lens on a full frame camera. But Sony seems to be uh, betting pretty heavily on this because even the pr the promotional pictures of the A6500 are showing the G Master lenses mounted on the camera. So they're clearly targeting this camera at professional shooters who they're assuming already own several full-frame lenses. And they're saying, implicitly they're saying that it's okay to use those lenses with this camera. Here's the thing, if these lenses are de designed for super high resolution sensors in the 70 to 100 megapixel range, which is not crazy seeing considering the current state of the industry, then I think they're kind of implying that even with that loss of resolution, they're still going to be able to comfortably out-resolve a 24 megapixel sensor. So you shouldn't notice any penalties for using a full-frame lens on this camera. That's the only sort of reasoning I can I can make for for this. Yeah, I mean the G Master lenses also have sharpness to spare, so it's it's probably fine. But um, uh, the other thing, and I'm not actually 100% sure on this, but technically, aren't some of the flaws uh, lessened? For example, any sort of vignetting, yeah, um, or yeah, decrease towards edge sharpness, right? Because you're sort of getting a a cropped version of you know, there's less. It's not the full um, area of the lens that's that's being read on the sensor. So technically, some of that edge stuff can be mitigated by the fact that you're uh, only looking at the center of the lens. Yeah, this is something that, that I don't fully understand, to be honest, because in my mind, like you're not just using the center portion of the lens, which you are, but you're not, it's not like you're enlarging it or anything. Right, yeah. It is a smaller sensor. Yeah. It's just a denser sensor, typically, because if you have a 24 megapixel full frame sensor and a 24 megapixel uh, APS-C sensor, the pixel density is higher on the APS-C sensor. And that's the kind of the argument for saying that the flaws are magnified because you're looking yeah. at the at the lens with a lot more precision. But if you compare it with a 42 megapixel a A7R2, what's the rate there? I don't know which one of the two is denser, actually. I, I would have to do the math, but it's it's not going to be a mind-blowing difference there. So Yeah, I think that's the main takeaway here is that it's not something that you need to worry about in in most shooting scenarios. I mean, in any shooting scenarios, really. I think you'd, you'd really have to be looking to highlight those flaws and to set up situations that um, that make them apparent in order to even notice them. Because otherwise, it's just like great glass is great glass and 
the only thing that that meaningfully changes in terms of the shooting experience is obviously the change in uh, field of view. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So like this could be a viable backup camera. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's just, I think that's exactly what they're positioning it as is like, yeah. you please, I'm never going to do it, but please buy a seven bodies. They'll be your a cam and then buy an a 6,500 because it's your super quick sports B cam. You know, you'll get a little more reach because of the APS-C size sensor. You can use the same lenses and get great performance out of them. And it's slightly more compact. So maybe if you want to go traveling and don't want to bring your uh, your A7 kit, then, you know, just bring that. I don't, I mean, the, the difference in, in like size and weight is not actually that much between the A6000 series and the A7 series, but still yeah. it's enough, especially yeah. now with the, the, with the larger grip on the A6500. But yeah, it is, it is a like dedicated sony b cam i think sony's ideal professional right now owns one or two a7 bodies and one of these guys yeah that's fair well if they would hurry up and announce another a7 camera i might be (laughs) (laughs) and you know the thing is that they they're kind of admitting that their aps-c lens lineup kind of sucks a little bit because that's uh, the only reason i can imagine for them pushing the images the promotional images with the full frame lenses. If their APS-C lens lineup was strong, I don't think they would do it. But it's just something that they need to do because, I mean, if you compare the lineup to Fuji's, for example, it's just night and day. That's something... Yeah, not even close. I mean, you can't really realistically develop a system overnight and they've done a pretty good job. But it's true that for the past couple of years that they focused almost exclusively on the full frame side of it and now it's kind of coming back to haunt them a little bit. They, I think their their APS-C lens lineup needs some attention, and I hope they give it to to it soon. So let's. I think we need to address the elephant in the room because there's a certain gentleman we know who who went out of his way and you know fell in love with the camera so fast, and then went and bought it really fast. And you get Alvaro. Do you know who I'm talking about? This is like this is like a really bad hangover story, right? Exactly. This is like, did oh, I, I really do that? It doesn't seem real anymore. It's like, it's like, ah, oh, crap. Was that even me? Oh, oh no! I woke up in the morning and oh no! What, what have I done? <laughs> Someone unfamiliar in bed with me. Yeah. Uh, so the gentleman in question is is me. Um, I have been reviewing the Olympus Pen F, which we mentioned before on uh, on a previous episode. And those of you who follow me on Instagram probably saw that uh, a number of the shots that I posted were suddenly coming from that camera. Um, so my review period ended uh, about a week ago, not even that much. And the day before it ended, I found myself <laughs> uh, purchasing my very own Olympus Pen F and... Uh, don't worry. It was very funny. It was very funny handing the camera back to Olympus because I was like, okay, well, here's yours and here's mine. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, I'm, I find myself in a bit of a, a, a conflict, uh, something of a crisis of faith because I did, I fell in love with the, uh, with the Pen F and I think it's because it, um, it feels to me a lot like what I might have wanted um, a next generation X100 series camera to be, um, right. but with an interchangeable lens. And there's a there's a lot to love about this camera. So we we've spoken before about how the build is incredibly um, just 
just very impressive and it feels amazing. Um, the dials feel great. The look, of course, is also very nice. Uh, if you're if you're into the retro style, it's a, it's a very distinctive looking camera. I personally think it's very handsome. Yeah. Um, but more than that, I was surprised by the images and that's, you know, that's why we're doing this is because of the output of these cameras. And what I was expecting was that I would pick this camera up and that I would love the way it feels and love the way it looks. But then I'd, you know, be working with the images and I'd be like, ah, shucks, you know, micro four thirds sensors too small to be good. And I just, err. and then I would hand it back and life would go on. Unfortunately for me, the images that I was getting from the camera are outstanding. <laughs> um, they are they are very nice to work with. Uh, I for, just for reference here, the last um, Olympus body that I was working with in terms of the files was, uh, I believe, an EM one. Right. So that was the previous generation sensor, sixteen megapixels, and um, I also have access to an EM five Mark II that I occasionally shoot on. It belongs to my mom, um, but there is a clear difference in the. First of all, the the malleability of the files in terms of post-processing, but also the level of detail that's being captured here, despite the relatively modest seeming four megapixel increase in in raw resolution. So I a lot of the reviews that that came out about the Pen F when it was released said basically that, oh, we're so disappointed. This is not really a meaningful step forward for micro four thirds in terms of uh image output. And I find myself disagreeing with that pretty strongly because the images that I'm getting out of the same lenses on this camera are really not comparable to the 16 megapixel sensor. Like they're they're just not. Right. And that makes me even more optimistic about the EM1 Mark II, which is going to have the same resolution, but um, a, a different sensor, presumably a better sensor. Um, and of course, it's nice to have that stabilization back because of course, on the Fuji side of the equation, stabilization exists only in the lenses and only in very few of them. So I've been making do without that for right. the past couple of years. Right. For what it's worth, I think mm. the Panaf is an amazing camera. I, I shot with it briefly at Photokina. And like you said, uh, I, I went just on your recommendation basically to check it out for myself. And it's true. It it feels amazing. The dials, the precision of the dials, and, and, and the it's like the manufacturing tolerances are incredibly narrow. Like it's just super well made. But if I may yeah. say so, I think it's not just the camera that has seduced you with its dark arts. It's more like the macro lens too, isn't it? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So in. Uh... In parallel with the Pen F, well, not in parallel because I, I got them uh, simultaneously, but I, I've been shooting with the 60 mil macro and that lens is a lot of fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I had not really, I'd not really spent much time with it before. Uh, so so I, I didn't really, I didn't really believe the hype, but it's, uh, it's real folks. The, the 60 mil macro, if you shoot micro four thirds, you need to own that lens. Right. It is unbelievable. Uh, first of all, it is remarkably sharp across the entire frame, even shooting wide open. And it also makes it very, uh, in combination with the uh, with the stabilization system, it makes it very, like almost unfairly easy to get great looking product shots. Um, like I, I've been doing some review shots recently and it feels uh, effortless because I don't even have to get my tripod out in most cases. As long as the light is decent, I'm fine to hand hold these 
macro shots that normally you you know you expect a bit of setup for and it's just not been the case it's totally cheating it's cheating yeah it feels it feels exactly totally like cheating. cheating so yeah you're right yeah. that that's another big factor so yes the camera itself is great but also i think the fact that i was using this camera with this lens was uh, you know a, a one two punch of uh of just really showing off the potential of modern day micro four thirds in a way that I was was not anticipating to be right. so good. Right. Well, I, I I have joke about that, but I'm curious to to see. Did you stop to think about really because it, it the combination made a big impression on you. There's no no doubt about that. But what percentage of that impression do you attribute to the camera and what percentage do you think it was because of the lens? Because that's important too. It is. So I think that actually uh, setting aside the 60 mil even, um, I was shooting with the 25 mil, the Olympus. Uh, we've got the 12 to 40 Pro, which is a you know, spectacular lens. Uh, and I also have the 17 millimeter um, Olympus lens now. And uh, the I think what I'm remembering and remembering very fondly is that the optical quality of the Micro Four Thirds lens ecosystem is really good. And the fact that it's so tiny is uh is meaningful uh, you know the, the yeah. fact that i'm able to carry such a tiny camera with such tiny lenses and yet um get image output that is in many circumstances comparable to what i'm used to from my fuji cameras that feels remarkable and in fact yeah. we were um I, I was just sitting here uh at my kitchen table the other week with a friend of the show thomas wong and he uh, wanted to see the the pen F, so I showed him that, and we were we were laughing because we were comparing the sizes of you know the equivalent thirty five millimeter field of view or fifty millimeter field of view lenses, even between Fuji and Micro Four Thirds. Suddenly, it makes the Fuji system look big, <laughs> and one of the things that we love about mirrorless is that you know it's oh it's so small, um, but that's you know that's one thing that. Um, Josh was saying earlier that that Micro Four Thirds has the speed and and these other advantages. They also have size, and it's not insignificant, especially when you are doing a lot of um, shooting, not in a you know like a studio or a home situation, but going places and shooting, right, where you have to carry your gear around, especially over longer periods of time. Like I'm I'm looking forward to travel shooting, and I'm thinking, man, is there really such a discrepancy in image quality that I'm willing to deal with the additional weight and hassle of larger lenses and larger bodies right. rather than being able to carry a vastly thorough kit in my smallest camera bag. Right. I think that the, there's something going on here, which is that sensor size and lens size uh, in relation to image quality across systems is not a linear graph. Like it's not... Yeah. It seems like it's not a linear graph. I, I don't know for a fact that it isn't, but it definitely feels like it isn't. And it's like Micro Four Thirds is too good to be so small. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's my that's my feeling about it. It's like, yeah, full frame is definitely better. APS-C is second best and Micro Four Thirds is the third one. Absolutely. But the gap between them, it feels like Micro Four Thirds is right there with APS-C on many things. Perhaps the one that where it struggles a little bit more is depth of field. But in any other thing, it, they're, they're just neck and neck. And then there's also a fairly small gap because APS-C sensors are pretty good these days. But but it feels like it feels like Micro Four Thirds should be worse. 
considering how light and small they are. Yeah. And they are not. They they're 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 excellent. They're amazing. And and it takes shooting with one of those cameras to fall in love with the system because otherwise I think most people don't even consider a micro four thirds camera because they have it in their heads that it it cannot be good enough. But it is. It really is. Or conversely you could say that APS-C and full frame should be that much better. True. Yeah. I mean, if you actually look at the sizes comparatively, the the gap between APS-C and micro four thirds is actually very small compared to the gap between APS-C and full frame. So is it? It, it makes sense that though. Yeah. Yeah. If you actually look at them, the, those two are relatively close together, whereas there's a more meaningful gap in size between APS-C and full frame. I'm not exactly sure about that. It feels like they're exactly apart because they have, you have, uh, if you, Talk about the crop factor, full frame is one, APS-C is 1.5, and Micro Four Thirds is two. So it, it's like, it's exactly in the middle between one and two, right? It's possible. I, I just remember looking at a chart where it was laid out and it, it seemed to me like there was, you know, a bit of a discrepancy there. But either way, y- your your point is is correct, that it, it feels like Micro Four Thirds should be worse <laughs> given the uh, given the size comparison. But I think where it really struggles, and the, the only real place that I'm finding is still a weak spot, is uh, is low light. And specifically, it's, it's not so much that you can't get good images in low light, it's that the uh, presence of noise becomes noticeable a lot sooner than on right. an APS-C body. And that's something that doesn't, uh, you know, it may or may not be a concern depending on your tolerance for noise um, and depending on your post-processing, right? Because I think a, a lot of that goes away with any decent noise reduction algorithm. Yeah. Um, and so you, you kind of have to think about workflow as part of a system choice, I think. And that might be something to keep in mind. Like, yes, the shooting experience is going to be great. You're going to have this very light kit, but maybe you have to spend an extra few minutes in post-production just to stay on top of that additional noise. And is it the end of the world to do that? No. Is it better to not have to do that? Sure. But then, you know, you're giving up some, some other things. It's all, it's all a dance of compromises. But bear with me here for a second. Uh, There's a flip side to that. And yes, Micro Four Thirds sensor will always have more noise than a similarly specced full frame sensor and or APS-C sensor because bigger size means you gather more light, yeah, and that translates to uh, lower noise. That's just physics. There's no way around that. But with the crop factor, I mean, when people think about low light photography, it's not just about shutter speed. It's not just about ISO. It's not just about light. Aperture matters too. And the reality is that if you try shooting with an f1.4 lens on a full-frame camera at night, you might be able to get a, a faster shutter speed and get your shot at a lower ISO, and therefore you might be able to get uh, lower noise. Yep. But you're going to have a super thin depth of field. Yes. And if you're trying to get a, fo- a group photo, there's no way you're going to get everyone in focus. Yeah, that's true. If you do, if you try to take that same picture with a Micro Four Thirds camera, your depth of field is going to be roughly twice as as thick, which means you might get everyone in focus with the exact same exposure parameters. So there's also that side to low light photography that people seem to ignore when this discussion comes up and on on pretty much everywhere that that I've looked. And I don't think it's insignificant. I think having greater depth of field with a fast aperture can be, can definitely be a strength for low light photography and it's a strength that falls on the side of Micro Four Thirds 
but for some reason, nobody seems to consider it. And the other factor that is, you know, kind of goes hand in hand with that um, is the presence of the stabilization, right? I mean, that is another thing. It's not going to help you if your subject is moving, but it means that you're able to get a reasonable shutter speed in those exact same right. uh, circumstances. And that's a big advantage. And it it's, it's very... Like, I think this is where the argument gets uh, tricky because a lot of people will say, well, that yes, uh, you know, the the stabilization gets you some, but it's still better to just be able to crank the ISO and not worry about noise versus whatever. And there's, I think both sides are valid. Um, to, to me, at the end of the day, what, what differs is the workflow because ultimately I don't think right now that there is um, a set of images that I couldn't get on an Olympus camera that I can get on... Uh, a Fuji camera necessarily, but right. I have to I have to do different kinds of work to get those images, and that's what I'm that's what I'm beginning to discover is is that I can get to the same output, but the path is different, and that's ultimately the decision is which path uh, do I prefer? Yeah, no, that that's uh, ultimately that's a personal call, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, everyone needs to make their own choice, of course. Yeah. And what sucks is that I, of course, am uh, also reviewing the Fuji X-T2 right now at the same time. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it is it is a very confusing time for me right now. So doesn't it feel like coming back home after a long time away? It does. So I I, uh, <laughs> I unfortunately was was very mean to this X-T2 and I neglected it for a while um, in, in light of the pen F fun that I was having. But uh, over the past few days, I've been shooting exclusively with the X-T2, and I actually, we, just before recording, I was out doing some uh, chasing of birds and wildlife and things like that um, to test out not only the uh, tracking, but I also have the uh, 50 to 140 lens, which I've never used before, but my God, is it magnificent. Right. Um, this this is like holy crap! Such a such a uh, the, the sharpness I'm getting out of this lens is is unbelievable. Um, but anyway, so now I'm, I'm, you know, obviously falling in love again with the, uh, with everything that I, that brought me to Fuji in the first place to, to put it that way. I mean, the, it is, it feels like getting great images out of this camera is basically effortless in the sense that whatever effort I'm putting, uh, is happening upfront. You know, I need to work to get the shot. Any effort is just right there in the camera, getting the shot. Once that shutter clicks, I know that that image is great and chances are good I don't have to do very much to it in post-production. Like, I don't have to clean noise. I don't have to do anything. It's just done. And if I do want to push it, I have a lot more dynamic range to work with on the X-T2 sensor and the X-Pro2 sensor. How are you coping with the temptation of just shooting JPEG and being done with it? You know, to me, that's never actually been very tempting because, uh, I, like, so I, I shoot RAW and JPEG and I mostly use the JPEGs but I always shoot raw because it just feels silly not to, right? Like storage is cheap and- I'm right there with you. And I always want to be able to go back to my images and know that I have the full uh, editing latitude that was available to me because technology improves and editing software improves and things like that. So I, I, I do think that for archival purposes, it's important to always shoot raw, but that doesn't mean that that's the image file, uh, that, you know, that that's the workflow that I'm using for publishing all the time. Yeah, but to be fair, with the embedded camera profiles that you get in Lightroom with the Fuji RAWs, it's almost like shooting JPEG, even if you only shoot RAW, because you can just select the camera profile and you get a very close result to what you would have gotten if you had just shot JPEG. It's true. With the exception of Acros, it's true. They're they're generally quite um, they're quite accurate. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, for me, part of the other thing that actually made me fall in love again with with Fuji is this whole ecosystem um, that they've built. And that's what's most impressive about them is is the confidence with which they have um, made progress towards this point where they've got medium format launching and it's amazing. And that is very disruptive. They have totally dominated the APS-C market in terms of pushing that sensor potential forward, trying a different uh, pixel array, and just really building cameras for photographers. Below that, they've got this whole Instax craze that they have built up again. You know, they've, they've brought instant printing back into Vogue, and I happen to have the uh, SP2 printer with me and the monochrome film, finally the new monochrome film. And I have to tell you, it's a lot of fun, not just for me, but also for just normal people, for me to be able to like take someone's portrait and then from the camera directly just right. send that JPEG over. That's awesome. And <laughs> if I was shooting just, if I was shooting only raw, I would actually have to do the in-camera conversion first and then send that. It's it's just an extra little step. It's not the end of the world. Um, but I, I kind of like just being able to instantly say, okay, give me one second. I will show you this photo and literally hand it to them moments later from this tiny little printer that I pulled out of my bag. Right. Like that is so cool. It is so cool that you can do that. And of course you can do it with other cameras as well. I mean, I've printed uh, Olympus photos. You just have to pull them onto your phone first and then from there. Right. Uh, but the integration, the integration is just fantastic and very satisfying. And like I said, I do tend to use the JPEGs a lot, but to answer your original question, no, I, I, I would never give up shooting raw. I don't see why anyone would. Unless there's, unless you run out of like cards or something, there's just no reason to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you mentioned something very interesting for a second there. I didn't want to stop you. You said that a Fuji dominated the APC segment, and I agree with you in terms of technical excellence, which is perhaps the most important metric. But I don't think that they've ever been the top-selling APS-C uh, manufacturer. So in that way, if we were to make an analogy, it's like. Uh, just to compare it to Apple, for example, they would be like Apple, but not the current Apple, Apple perhaps 10 years ago, where they clearly had the best product in their hands, but they still hadn't found massive mass market success. Right. And the question is, will they? They're doing all the right things, definitely. And they definitely have the confidence and the faith that it's going to pay off. And I really hope it does. Well, one of the things that you noticed, one of the things that you noticed even at Photokina is that now having having reached a certain um, a certain point in their growth, they are beginning to be a little more confident and a little yeah. more courageous about pushing the marketing. And I felt that even here locally, like the the various events that I've been to for Instax launches and for uh, other camera launches and things like that, like they are spending good money to make sure that people are aware of their products and are um, delighted by their first encounters with them. And that's very important because I think that there, you know, we, we were actually looking the other day at a chart that that popped up on Reddit where they were, um, it was kind of like an aggregated data um, infographic that looked at the most popular uh, camera and lens combinations uh, taken from EXIF data that was um, uploaded from Flickr and 500 pixels and Instagram and all sorts of places. And it was remarkable to see how few mirrorless cameras are there. Right. And to me, the reason that that's interesting is because it reminds us that 
although we are very enthusiastic about mirrorless and we are debating between like individual mirrorless companies and things like that, for the vast majority of this market, Canon and Nikon are the two options and you're yeah. only sort of vaguely aware of this other thing called mirrorless that exists, let alone that within mirrorless, there are these different brands and these different options and whatever. So I think Fuji is aware of that and they're trying to, um, they're trying to drum up enough awareness to those people, right? To the folks who are suddenly becoming cognizant of the fact that within the mirrorless realm, there are uh, options like Fuji that provide you with a different take on uh, you know, what it means to be a great camera. Because Canon makes great cameras and Nikon makes right. great cameras, but it's not the only way to make a great camera. And I think that that's what Fuji is trying to introduce people to. And it's, you know, they're succeeding. I mean, we're, we've seen a lot of high profile switches just in the past year of people um, moving to Fuji. And I think that that is uh, encouraging for them, right? I mean, it seems to me that they're on the right path with what they're doing. And it's almost like the mirrorless industry as a whole is taking a very nonchalant stance in the whole discussion, it's like, we don't need to worry about DSLRs. They're going to die of, of natural causes. It's like Darwinism <laughs> at its best. We don't need to worry about them. Natural selection will just take care of them. And we just have to wait until it's our time in the spotlight. So they don't seem to be very concerned about that. But I, I agree with you that they should. Maybe they should push the marketing factor and they would bring this new world uh, forward even faster. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that we, you know, we've said this before. I think that we are of the opinion that DSLRs are are on their way out, not in a hurry, but eventually they will be superseded by the, you know, better technology, but the technology has to actually get better. Right. But shouldn't, shouldn't the new guys be more eager to make that change happen faster? That's just it. Yeah, that's just it. And right now you're right. It seems like the, the majority of them are fairly complacent about that. Um, I mean, I, I guess that's not fair because Olympus does make fun of the DSLR guys a lot on on the weight front, at least. So they're trying to uh, hasten their demise on, but, but it's a different, I, I don't know if that's really the same kind of thing. Um, here it's, yeah, Fuji is basically saying, hey, look guys, we we make great cameras and don't take our word for it. Like, try them, do this. Like, I don't know um, if it's the same out there in Spain, but here in Canada, for example, they've been running uh, promotions at every major retailer where you can spend three days with a Fuji camera for free. Oh no, we don't have that here. It. I'm totally doing that for the GFX. Yeah, and it's that's a really good way. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way to sell the cameras, right? It's like, hey, you know what? We could tell you, we could tell you whatever we want, but you know what? Go to whatever store you like, try it, take it home for three days, shoot with it. It'll sell itself. Yeah, I think people just hear they, they just buy it on Amazon, try it for thirty days, and if they don't like it, they just return them. They return it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other way to do it, but it's, of course, it's not the same because here you're risking your own money to do that. Right. If you dent the camera or something, then you're out of luck. But Now, yeah. I want to ask, I want to ask you something specifically, Albro, because you okay. finally, uh, you know, I have a, a fellow Fuji, someone who's aware of the cameras because you got to play with them at, uh, at I did. I did. And one of the things that you got to play with in more detail is the, the new AF tracking. That's, of course, the hallmark feature of the X-T2 and so on yes. and so forth. So I wanted to get your impressions and compare notes a little bit because I spent some time uh, the other day doing specifically like, testing this tracking system and trying to uh, wrap my head around how it works. And I was finding that I was getting a lot of missed shots because I am uh, like the, the ways in which the, uh, the, the customization works is different from the last camera that I used uh, to do this kind of shooting, which was the Canon 5D Mark III, I guess. 
so I, there's a lot of there's a learning curve here. I guess is what I'm oh, discovering. Yeah. It's it's yeah. not it's not something that you're going to be able to just pick up and suddenly succeed with. Um, I don't know if that was your impression as well. Absolutely. And if you guys listened to the Fuji episode back uh, during Photokina Week, I had a chance to talk to Peter Fallen, a Fuji employee. He, and he was kind enough to test the tracking feature with me for over half an hour. We used a water bottle as a test subject and we would just place it in the frame and remove it and see if the camera, depending on which mode you use, we tried to see if the camera locked focus to the bottle and tracked it along or if just immediately ignored the bottle and focused on the on the background. Yeah. Uh, and it does that depending on which which setting you use. But it's not, like you said, it's not immediately obvious and it really takes a while to figure out which mode does what. So it's it's not just something that you're going to figure it out as you go. So yeah, uh, I think it, it it was over 15 minutes until we got an acceptable result uh, by using, I don't remember which mode it was. But yeah, it's basically the bottom point is that you definitely have to dedicate some time to it to to sort of learn how the camera behaves in each mode yeah because if you just find one that you are kind of happy enough with how it works that's not good enough you have to try all of them because there might be another one that works even better yeah and i think that's what uh that's what threw me initially is that so first of all just, f- just for everyone to know i almost never shoot bursts and I almost never use continuous autofocus when right. I'm shooting. Like that it just those are things that very rarely uh come into play in the kind of shooting that I do. That's the marking of a good photographer. <laughs> well, maybe or just a photographer with different needs. But anyway, so I I don't I'm not used to those things, right? So for me it was it was partly an experiment in learning to shoot that way and partly in learning how this tracking system works. And I found the same thing, and I actually I, I probably made it harder for myself than I needed to because I was trying to track um, the family dog as he was running around in circles in the backyard, and right. he is tiny and quick. So it was, um, you know, it was a fairly intense thing to start with, and I'm still getting used to the lens as well, right? That's another factor. Is this is my first time shooting with the 50 to 140, and yes, right. it is a magnificent lens, and it focuses lightning fast, um, but it's. I'm not used to the focusing distance yet, which is a lot further than um, than I expected it to be. Uh, it's fine; it's a telephoto lens, right? But it's still, it's. I, I had to learn how to position myself to make sure that as the dog was running towards me, he didn't end up closer than the minimum focusing distance, right. which happened a lot of times. And I was trying to figure out why the tracking would suddenly stop, and then I was like, "Hey, dumbass! It's because you're too close to the <laughs> subject." Um, but it was also a matter of trying to. Uh, finesse the algorithm itself and understand the like elasticity of the tracking because it's very it's like i said it's very different from the canon even though the modes are very similar like even the menu looks very similar to what canon's got right but it behaves differently and it takes it takes some getting used to um but i'm I'm hoping that with more testing over the next few days i'm gonna get a uh, better handle of it and be able to know how to set it for what kind of uh, for what kind of action, basically. Yeah, I guess the bottom point for me was uh, you do require to have very good light because uh, autofocus in mirrorless cameras in, in dim light, it's still a struggle Yeah. despite the, the, despite the recent improvements. But the, the main issue here, 
I would say, even if you get disappointing results at first, don't give up. Keep trying because you will find in the end uh, the, the setting that works exactly the way you intend the camera to to work. Yeah. So it's just it, it takes some time. It, that that's all. And I think that in itself is an achievement, right? Because for the longest time there was this ceiling in terms of yeah. uh, continuous autofocus performance and tracking performance. And it felt like mirrorless just wasn't pushing past that ceiling. And now it's at the point where I think uh, like the vast majority of sports situations can be covered yeah. um, with the X-T2. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's great. Like that's really an amazing achievement. Yeah, and the curious thing is that this is not really uh, related to mirrorless technology by itself. This is more of a computational problem. It's like that's right, the, yeah. the, the image processor has gotten smart enough to be able to tell in real time where your subject is and where you want to focus and to keep focused there. So it's not a technical limitation that the sensor isn't fast enough. It's just that the pros- the processor in the camera needs to get smart enough to know what you want to do and do it for you. Yeah. Josh, what do you think? I mean, you one of your friends recently picked up an X-T2, didn't they? Uh, here's what I think. I think you and I have a bet that I'm not, I'm going to buy a new camera before Christmas and all of these, like you going back and forth, oh, I'm not interested in any of that <laughs> stuff. So I think I'm going to win this bet. We'll see. <laughs> uh, you say that pretty confidently. I say, anyway, um, I have not seen or played with the X-T2 yet and I have not had a chance to play with my pal's X-T2 yet either. In fact, I'm not entirely sure if, he remembered to buy a lens to go with his X-T2. So a bit of a he problem. might just have an X-T2 sitting on the yeah, shelf Details. Right uh. <laughs> details. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm so caught up in this full frame thing. And I, it's like bokeh from like a year ago. <laughs> I can't get past well, it. Well, we're moving forward at, at least. <laughs> it's a step. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I see the reason. The reason that I ask you is because I, um, w- what I would like to find out is when you do get a chance to play with an XT2, whether whether it's his or whether it's mine, when you come visit me in Toronto, um, I say mine as if I'm going to own one, which I probably will. No, uh, jeez. <laughs> and you say uh, Toronto <laughs> as if I'm coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a given at this point. If the bet was in reverse, Marius, you would have lost it three times over before Christmas. So <laughs> easily, easily. See, this is why I don't make the bet at my expense. I make it at Josh's. Because, uh, but but anyway, yeah. No, I, I what what makes me curious is that um, I want to know if the XT2 or even the X-Pro2, frankly, is sufficiently compelling to you as a camera. Again, not necessarily from an image perspective, but just because of how successful it is as a photographer's tool, like ergonomically um, right, and, right. and with the quality of the so, optics to tempt you towards a Fuji B-cam instead of a an A6500, for example, right? If you right, were to if right. you were to get another body and not necessarily adopt another system wholesale, but just have another kit option, especially given right. the fact that your current Sony option you're super happy with the image output, but you don't seem to be all that tempted to go out and shoot with it. Right. So the whole don't seem to be tempted thing, I think a better word for it is hate. Yeah. Like, I hate the camera body. I was trying to be gentle. Just rip the Band-Aid off. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. I I cannot... St- <laughs> I cannot stand the camera body. I'm looking at it right now. I pick it up in my hand. I'm just like, ugh. Like, anyway. But... Yeah, exactly. So um, it'll be interesting to see when I get a chance to play with it. I, I think in the end, 
I'm far more interested to see um, if Sony's new A7 Mark III, A9, whatever the heck it is, ends up actually adopting an ergonomic format, like something that everybody else is doing that, but you know, they haven't done to this point. Yeah. You know, I think that'll be a, de- a really determining factor of where I end up going, but I am not going to drop anything until, until they decide to make up their mind and finally announce a camera, finally announce a camera. It's been a year. Oh yeah. my word. It's been a whole year. <laughs> it's been a whole year. <laughs> Can I offer my two cents on the matter? Yeah, please do. No, you're not allowed. You're, no, 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 <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, seriously, I don't, I actually don't think the A7 II series is that poor ergonomically. I think the problem is that the dials and the buttons are terrible. But the, the camera itself, the body itself is not bad. It's not that bad, at least for me. I don't find the the grip deep enough, man. Like, I just don't. Well, it's deeper than anything else out there other than DSLRs, right? True. True, which is why I literally just typed in henrys.com and went straight to the... 5D Mark IV. There you go. <laughs> that should solve everything. There's plenty of grip on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, uh, my own two cents is that if I didn't own a full-frame camera, if I didn't think I needed a full-frame camera, uh, I definitely think Fuji is the system I would go with. There's nothing in the Sony APS-C lineup that, that makes me go, wow, there's nothing that Micro Four Thirds has that tempts me that I think is better than what Fuji is doing right now. So really the only reason why I keep shooting Sony and the only reason why I'm considering the A6500 as my backup camera is because I have made an investment in a full frame system and I'm sticking to it. But if I were living in APS-C land, there's absolutely, I would go with Fuji. Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind. I see. That was my question. It was going to be, you say Fuji, like, do you mean GFX? Because I'm no, laughing no, no, at you no. if you're going X-T2. That's but. too much for me. Uh, I, I'm I'm not going to lie. I'd love to, I really love to try a GFX camera. And if it was, you know, if it absolutely blew my mind, I'm not going to lie. I would consider it. Well, yeah. but you, you, I mean, it's not really comparable because it's a purpose-built tool and it's really not, it doesn't have the the same shooting envelope as an X-T2 or an A7 or anything like that. Like it's a, it's a much more narrow realm of photography that a medium format camera like the GFX is going to excel at. Okay. So really quickly, really, really, really quickly name that realm of count uh, of photography because i believe that you're referring to studio photography and still life photography and maybe like professional level environmental photography am i right i would i would characterize it as that and but generally things where it's very controlled shooting circumstances yeah. so you have a lot of control over the light at all times you're not going to be right. running and gunning with this thing uh and and that to me is the is the big limiting right. factor so so iPhone for the run and gun and GFX for everything else, like super expensive way to go and probably idiotic, but like, what's wrong with that, with that mentality? Well, what do you take with you on a trip to Europe for three weeks? How close is the iPhone to being good enough to be doing all of that? I don't know. How close is it? You've been on that trip recently. I think it's really, really close. I, it's like really close maybe a generation out. I don't know. Like I look at the only thing that might cut back on it is the megapixel count or, or whatever, but I, I don't know. Everything's built into that iPhone already that I would just wonder how much can of that 
iPhone can uh, take over all of the everyday general casual photography. And, you know, you have this really kick ass high end medium format camera that does all of your money making work. I just swore on the show. Bleep that out. It's got to have it's got to have a lot of money making work to justify that. Well, cost. But, 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 they, but didn't that guy say it'd be well short of ten thousand dollars? Well, but well, Peter off the record, Peter Fallen, he said, well, if it's off the record, I probably shouldn't say it here. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but like if he says well short of $10,000, you put a 5D Mark IV and you take a, a lens or, or two and you're in the six to $7,000 range. So like. Uh, but it's, it's, let's just say it's north of 9,000. Well, that's what he expected it to be. Oh, so well short of 10,000 is 500 bucks. Like, oh, God. well, it is a thousand bucks is a lot of money. So it definitely counts as well short of 10,000. 10% of 10,000. Yeah. You're right. Either way, either way, I think that in that hypothetical scenario of yours, you would be much, much better served by that 5D Mark IV than you would be by the GFX. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, right. it, absolutely. Would, see, it would behave the way right. that you would expect it to as a camera. Like you don't have to sort of relearn the basics of of dealing with this thing because it's not a monster. Like the, the 5D Mark IV is built to be super flexible. It can handle anything that you throw at it and it's, you know, full frame. So you'll love that. Um, or or anything that you throw with it or throw or throw at it, yeah, exactly. yeah, it, exactly, yeah. yeah it, it's built it like doubles a tank, as a so. self defense weapon, definitely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, you can funny. lift it as a weight. I, I do agree with you guys. I'm I, I know I'm being a little bit crazy, but I'm just uh, I'm in this little like funk where I'm I'm just never I, I'm not going to falter very quickly on that. So yeah, no, but see, that's why that's why I wonder if a more inspiring camera would actually be a good choice for you. Because yes, you love Maybe. full frame and yes, you love the the image output. But if you had a camera that was inspiring you to go out and shoot and you were excited about just picking it up and going out and, and using it no matter what you were doing, wouldn't that be more valuable than, you know, 10 extra megapixels and or, uh, you know, the ability to pull 15 stops of dynamic range instead of 13? <laughs> You're just being funny. Now. Come on. <laughs> Oh, boy. Guys, guys, can I tell you a secret?